Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty was signed by President Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev in 1987. President Trump is thinking about pulling out of the deal. He thinks the Russians are cheating. U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton is at the Kremlin for talks. With me is Joe Serencioni from the Plowshares Fund. Thanks for joining us, Joe. My pleasure, Jerome. Could you explain what the Intermediate Range Nuclear Treaty is? Sure. Some people may remember in the 1980s, some of the biggest demonstrations in European history occurred when the Soviets were pouring ground-based nuclear-tipped missiles into Europe. And the U.S. response was to deploy our own. Honest John, all kinds of missiles were brought in, and particularly ground-based cruise missiles. It resulted in millions of people taking to the streets uh, in that city. And it resulted in Ronald Reagan negotiating a treaty with then-Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, not to limit those, but to eliminate all those missiles. The treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, eliminated over 3,000 missiles and banned any ground-based missiles in either the U.S. or Russian arsenal that were in between the short ranges, like under 500 kilometers, and the ocean-spanning intercontinental ballistic ranges. So neither Russia nor the United States to this day have any missiles of that kind. It solved the problem and began a process of deep reductions in nuclear arsenals. Since that treaty was signed in 1987, we've seen an 84% reduction in U.S. and Russian arsenals. Now, it sounds like one of the things that is an advantage to the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty was that there's no reaction time if you've got really short missiles. And this is something that is almost a universal advantage for the whole planet. You know, you don't want a short missile situation. And if the U.S. and Russia don't have them, that's great. Good point. Uh, excellent. That was exactly the fear, that you might have two or three minutes to respond to a detected launch of these weapons. And since those missiles were likely coming at your missiles in the first wave, you had to use them or lose them. And so you put the whole continent of Europe on hair trigger, an extremely dangerous situation. And the idea would be that the Soviets, if there were some kind of conflagration in Europe, would just have to immediately launch on the U.S. Exactly. It's hard to imagine a war limiting itself to Europe. So any conflict that started there would almost certainly escalate. Now, why are people cheating on this? The U.S. thinks Russians are cheating on this deal and they're developing some kind of missile. And the Russians think the U.S. is developing some kind of missile. And what's the deal? Sure. Just two systems at issue here. One is a ground launch cruise missile. So it's a missile that takes off from the ground, but it's not ballistic. It doesn't go up and down like a baseball thrown in from the outfield. It hugs the terrain. So it flies with its own, well, basically artificial intelligence guiding it to the pre-designated target point, particularly dangerous, hard to detect kind of system. And the Russians have one that they seem to have extended the range up to, we think, someplace around 1,200, 1,300 kilometers. We always use kilometers when we talk about nuclear weapons, but that's about 800 miles or so. And they seem to have deployed a few of them in European Russia. So that's a violation of the treaty. Um, I happened to be on the National Security Advisory Board to the Secretary of State when we detected this uh, first violation, and it does appear that this is what the Russians did. The, The evidence is pretty strong. They deny it, however. In return, they say we're violating the treaty because we've put in missile interceptors into sites in Eastern Europe, allegedly to go after 
an Iranian-launched ballistic missile should the Iranians ever develop such a missile. They don't have one now. But the problem is those very tubes that we're using, they can be used to put offensive missiles in them. And we, in fact, we use those tubes on our Aegis cruisers and destroyers. So they have a good case. And they're saying, well, no, we're violating the treaty by putting a capability in the ground. And how are they supposed to know there's not offensive missiles in there? So this dispute has gone on for about three years now, and it is unresolved. We've been unable to resolve it. To be honest, neither side has pushed it very hard. The U.S. has not made a particularly strong push to correct this violation. So all diplomatic channels have not yet been exhausted. I'm talking with Joe Cirincioni from the Plowshares Fund, and we're talking about the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. President Trump is thinking about pulling out of the deal. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about mental health challenges in Puerto Rico in our Puerto Reconstruction series. Um, Some people think this is a negotiating ploy, and he has sent John Bolton into the Kremlin for talks. And what are the odds that the guy who thinks every nuclear arms treaty is a bad idea is going to uh, negotiate Uh, uh, something for this nuclear arms treaty. Ah, yes. Well, see, this is what's the underlying story here, is that it's likely that John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, is using the violation as an excuse to get out of a treaty he never liked. This is kind of a clash of worldviews. There's a whole lot of people, including most people in the U.S. government, most people in Congress, most Americans, think that it's good to have treaties that reduce the number of nuclear weapons. But there are cold warriors who believe that the only answer to the other guy's nuclear weapons is more of our own nuclear weapons. And this is classic. This goes back to the beginning of the nuclear age. And John Bolton is one of those nuclear Neanderthals. He thinks that what you have to do to counter the Russians is not negotiate with them. It's to deploy a system that's bigger than theirs. You have more of them than theirs. And you force them into submission, force them into surrender. And underlying this, you should know, is a group of people who want to deploy these systems not against Russia, but against China. And there's a push to deploy our own ground-based cruise missiles in the Asian theater to counter Russia. So there's some nuclear war fighters in that field too. Finally, it's not just about this treaty. If you don't like this treaty, you don't like any arms control treaty. So the fear is, and Senator Bob Corker, the Republican chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, voiced this just yesterday, the fear is that this is the beginning of a complete dismantlement of these restraining and reducing treaties. And this could be the end of arms control and the beginning of an unconstrained arms race. That, he says, is a terrible idea. I agree. Do the Russians want an unconstrained arm race? Uh, Vladimir Putin apparently does not like this treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. He, he apparently wants to get rid of it too. Yeah, he's you know this, the Russian hardline ideology sort of meets up with the American hardline ideology. This is why it's so hard to negotiate arms control treaties. You have, you have to have willing players in both countries. So I think he would prefer to have restraints on the U.S. side and be able to cheat on the other side. If the whole treaty goes away, what does he think about it? I think he thinks this is a net gain. So I believe that Bolton's move plays into Russians' hands. For example, you don't repeal laws against burglary because somebody breaks into your house. No, you have the laws to establish a system of order. So you don't repeal a system that bans a kind of weapon because somebody's cheating on it. You try to hold the cheater accountable and keep the ban. If you take this treaty away, you don't fix the Russian cheating. You validate it. You allow it. 
The only thing that makes this illegal of international law is the fact that you have a treaty. You take it away. Well, Putin's free to deploy more weapons that will threaten Europe and the U.S. move will increase the divide that already exists in the Western alliance. There isn't a single European country that wants the U.S. to pull out of this treaty. You hear statements from almost every country in Europe uh, saying, don't do this, Mr. President, stay in the treaty. This is a matter of European security. Uh, Bolton doesn't care that much about it. He's interested in a very different worldview, one that doesn't rely on alliances as much as all out U.S. military strength. I think a lot of people feel a little remote from nuclear treaty issues these days. Um, you started by talking about the times when the nuclear issue was a enormous people mover, and it had the hugest demonstrations, you know, in our lifetimes. Uh, were over anti-nuclear issues. Do you think that there would be a push now to save this treaty? Is there any? a way that popular opinion that human beings who are activated can make a difference here. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the ways this manifests itself is having particularly Republicans on Capitol Hill call the president off from this, tell them it's unpopular. So just yesterday you heard Senator Bob Corker, a Republican senator from Tennessee, and Rand Paul talking about this, having senior sort of validators, former diplomats and military people talk about it, having members of the public write to their senators and congressmen that they're worried about this, can push it. And you saw Rand Paul and, and Senator Corker even give the president an off-ramp. They're saying, well, maybe this is a negotiating ploy. Maybe this is like, you know, canceling the North Korea summit the way President Trump did. And it's a way of getting negotiating leverage to get Putin to the table. So you can give the president an out so that he can declare a win. And then with this president, he's always got to be seen as the winner. So there's still a possibility of saving this treaty. The more we hear from our allies, the more the State Department might get involved. So far, this has been almost completely run by John Bolton out of the National Security Council with the Department of Defense. The State Department, which nominally is in charge of treaties, has been almost completely cut out. I'm talking with Joe Serencioni from the Plowshares Fund. We've been discussing the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty signed by Reagan and Gorbachev. President Trump is thinking about pulling out of the deal. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about mental health challenges in Puerto Rico in our Puerto Reconstruction series. Before we let you go, Joe, I wanted to ask you a question about Saudi Arabia. And obviously, the Khashoggi situation is in everybody's mind. And there's a question about arms deals. And the president does not want to withdraw from a hundred and some billion dollars worth of arms deals. Um, you've walked around a few arms deals in your times. Uh, what do the Saudi arms deals really look like? What's at stake in terms of jobs and dollars? Well, the first is that it's not $110 billion. Almost all of that is what we call MOIs, Memorandum of Intent, indicating the Saudis have said, well, maybe we're interested in this. And very often, none of those come to pass. What we have is about $28 billion, not $110, $28 billion in pretty solid contracts, many of them negotiated during the Obama years. That will result in jobs, perhaps several thousand jobs. In fact, when the administration initially lauded the $110 million figure, they themselves said it would result in support 
for tens of thousands of jobs. The president, in his most recent talks, keeps escalating that. In the latest, he said it will create a million jobs. None of that is true. And it's not necessarily U.S. jobs. Part of these contracts is that we build the equipment over there. So probably 50 percent of the jobs figure you hear will be jobs created in Saudi Arabia, not in the United States. Overall, the arms trade does not result in all that many jobs for the United States. Overall, the trade is about $175 billion a year. That's all the weapons we sell everywhere. And this is in a massive U.S. economy numbered in the trillions. So the arms sales is not really a good enough factor for moving ahead for her as a job creation machine. Many people suspect that he's using the American jobs argument as cover for his own financial interest in the Saudis. He does a lot of business with them. President Trump and his family get a lot of money from the Saudis and have going back decades. And that that's really what he's interested in, not American jobs. I noticed that Canada had a $11.4 billion deal with Saudi Arabia for light armored vehicles. And Prime Minister Trudeau said uh, that Canada is mulling over cancellation of the deal in an interview broadcast over the weekend. We are actually seeing a broad recalibration of the Western relationship with Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's been mostly about oil and investments and some strategic uh, value. We're seeing them as a, a balance against Iran. But their value is declining over the years, quite frankly, and the, we're less dependent on oil than we were years ago. So you're seeing this, particularly with this moral outrage. I mean, as Fred Hyatt, the head of the editorial page for The Washington Post, put it last week, you know, how can you tell your daughter you worked for a murderer? You know, whether you're a consultant or a former diplomat or somebody at think tank getting money from them. So it's not just governments that are cutting their ties. Three think tanks in Washington just said they were going to turn down Saudi grants, which have flooded into this town over the last uh, several decades. I've seen the money come in and I've seen it affect the way people talk about Saudi Arabia. Amazingly, we may be at a pivot point where all this is changing, where we may reevaluate our entire posture in the Middle East, but we want one that's more balanced. So Saudi Arabia is one of our allies, not the key ally. I did want to bring up one more thing, uh, Joe. I, when we're talking about Mr. Khashoggi, I don't think people realize he is related. His uncle was one of the great arms dealers of the previous generation. Adnan Khashoggi was this huge arms dealer that supposedly uh, start of the Iran-Contra affair. He, he began facilitating the Iran-Contra affair for the U.S. and was one of the more flamboyant characters of his time. Yeah, a really unusual connection there. You're absolutely right. He was the broker in the Iran-Contra deal, which, to remind people, as unbelievable as it sounds, this is where the U.S. and Israel cooperated to sell U.S. weapons to Iran in order to get money to aid the Contras, who they were trying to have overthrow the Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Whew, talk about weird stories. And Adnan Khashoggi, when his role was exposed, it was hugely embarrassing. And as a result, I remember I was had a family in Boston, MIT had taken a large amount of money from him and had named a building after him. And they gave the money back and they took his name off the building. And so you may be seeing that kind of dynamic play out here with the murder of his distant cousin. 
Heavy layer of irony there. Um, thanks a lot for joining us, Joe Serencioni from the Plowshares Fund and talking about Saudi Arabian arms deals and the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, the ongoing mental health crisis in Puerto Rico. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Puerto Reconstruction, our look at the rebuilding of Puerto Rico. And today we are going to talk about rebuilding mental health in Puerto Rico. One of the cited statistics, and it's pretty amazing, is from November of 2017 to January of 2018, the island of Puerto Rico's suicide hotline saw a 246% increase in calls from people who said they'd attempted suicide compared to the same time a year earlier, a 246% increase. We're going to talk about the mental health situation in Puerto Rico now with Cynthia Garcia-Cole. She was a professor of education, psychology, and pediatrics at Brown University for 30 years. She moved back to Puerto Rico to teach. She taught at Albizu University for a bit and now is at the University of Puerto Rico. Thanks a lot for joining us, Cynthia Garcia-Cole. Thank you. I wonder if you could say something about the baseline of mental health in Puerto Rico before Hurricane Maria and what was going on there. Well, you know, we don't have great services, but, you know, we're based on community. And so communities were organized, communities were together. There was a lot of support from either your family or from neighbors and friends, etc. And that's what kept us going. There's been a couple of epidemiological studies on both adult and children's mental health. And we actually come down a little lower than Puerto Ricans in the U.S., So we've always talked about that familism and that community support as something very important. And that was there before Maria. When Hurricane Maria hits, I've seen some people describe it as the trauma is akin to war, practically. And in Hurricane Maria's case, there wasn't a lot of help after the hurricane hit. I imagine there is a prolonged period of trauma there. Absolutely. I mean, one thing when we came out of the shelters or of our households, etc., it was like war. It was like a nuclear bomb had hit us. There was no trees. Few trees that were around had no leaves. We were a very lush, green country, and there was nothing of that. You know, a lot of houses without roofs and a lot of houses gone. And so I think what was really poignant to our experience, which is the same experience I think that people after Katrina had, is that it took so long to get any support to rebuild, any support to deal with the damage, both physical, you know, everything that we had around and our internal 
destruction of everything that we knew about life. I mean, there were no routines. There was no water, no electricity, no communication, no TV, no radio. All the emergency communication went down. So it was like everything around us was gone and all the daily routines and things that we had in terms of, you know, managing life were gone. And for a very long extended period of time, I was, you know, a privileged person with education and a house and everything. First time that we saw light was around New Year's Eve. And this was September 20th. Wow. No fresh food, you know, no water. We had to stand on lines for everything from money to food to gasoline, etc. I have never gone through anything like this, and I hope I don't again. But I know that the lingering effects are still there for many of us. Tell me about your university. You were at the time teaching at Albizu University, and this that's is exactly right. This is a that's exactly. university that it's, specializes in psychology as a that's exactly right. Specialist. Mental health providers, yes. Yeah. So it was fascinating because we made a point of really trying to open as quickly as we could, and we did. Within two months, we were open and running with generators, you know, and dealing with diesel and all this kind of stuff. But it really provided like an oasis for a lot of us where we could get something back in track, like working, you know, like that gives you a sense of purpose, a sense that you can do something about the situation. And we supported each other a lot. The students came with all sorts of now, amazing stories from going, you know, without food for 10 days, tending to six different couples of elderly who were around her and there was no family, nobody. I mean, it took 10 days for somebody from the outside to get to her. All sorts of stories and stuff. So we immediately, our students and the faculty started doing, you know, runs into whatever places we could go raising funds from the U.S. and getting supplies there. And, you know, instead of classes, I mean, we used to do very short classes and then, you know, move into communities all over the island. It helps you heal when you are being able to help somebody else, not only yourself. But that was very limited at the very beginning. I would say for the first six months, we were all trying to make it as best as we could. I'm talking with Cynthia Garcia-Cole about her experience in Hurricane Maria. She's a professor of education, psychology, and pediatrics and teaches now at the University of Puerto Rico. She was in Chicago recently for a conference and talking about her experience and what's going on there. I wanted to say something about the response on a a psychology level. Uh, The federal emergency management agency, FEMA, uh, said they awarded $6.7 million for emergency mental health services and training programs, and they also provided $12 million for other mental health programs that were going to run through December for people who needed counseling, the children, the elderly. How did that work? Did you see that happen? I'm seeing it happen now. I mean, it's fascinating how long it has taken. It might have been awarded at the point after the hurricane. But I'm seeing now, about a month ago, I saw a couple of social workers, you know, walking from one house to the other in my neighborhood for the first time. And so I talked to them, and this was, yes, the money that FEMA had allocated. But now 
it's on the ground. I just heard also some other millions of dollars that are coming out for uh, children's mental health. The children's mental health, I think, has been really lagging behind. It always, we talk about adults, but there's very few people who are really trained to deal with trauma at this level. And children were just moved around from one place to another, from one school to another, you know, from grandma's house. They went to Florida for a couple of months and then they come back. And all of that sense of loss and insecurity were really not dealt with at the point that it needed to be dealt with. So now we're dealing with sort of the lag, the PTSD, right, of, you know, six months ago, one year ago. And so we really need to learn from these situations of how do we manage to get mental health services early on when things are happening. And I'm sure, you know, we are in a disaster area. It's harder to deal with. But if we can get, you know, a piece of bread to somebody up in the mountains, we can also get somebody who's trained to listen and to validate the losses, the trauma, the experience of deprivation that we all went through, something that I think it's going to now linger for years because we didn't deal with them, you know, in a timely fashion. Well, what was a better way to do this? I mean, Albizu University has a specialization in this kind of thing, and you are one of the top people in the country on this type of thing. Why not work with you? Your university was up and running in two months. That was pretty good. Yeah, two months. That was pretty good. That was one. We were one of the first ones to open of any organization in the island, for that matter. And yes, there is not a sense of really taking the resources that are in place. There's this sense of bringing people in, which I don't think it's necessarily the best thing to do. You can bring people in that might be, you know, highly trained and everything else, but you need to sort of deal with who's on the ground right now and what you need to do. And that's what I felt. It failed. It didn't help people who were like us, who were right there. We could have done a lot more if we had more resources to go with. Instead, the contracts were given to people outside of the island, away from our culture and everything. And then all of a sudden there was this sense of, oh, my God, yes, that's right. We need to deal with a different culture. How do we deal with this? So I think FEMA needs to really think through how to be on the spot with mental health. And if they can't bring anybody from the outside, use the resources that are there. There was a lot of, you know, community leaders that went out and did the best they could, you know, but they could have been trained in 24 hours, 36 hours. So at least ask five key questions. And then just listen, right? And then just listen, because the most important part of this is for us was to listen to all the stories, to listen to all the pain and the fright, you know, and the fears and, and the fears of what's going to happen next, because that was very much part of what everybody felt. What do you do with that sense of vulnerability that doesn't quit. I imagine a lot of people have that right now. That's right. It becomes part of your body and your mind. Well, you know, I'm a a yoga practitioner, so I do a lot of other things, other alternative methods that we can use to teach, to retrain the brain, to teach the body, to not be on this alert 
state. And that can be done. The PTSD is basically you maintain that alert, something is going to happen, what's going to happen next. And so there's, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, but there's also other alternative therapies that you can use your breathing and your body to retrain your brain to really say, hey, this is not all bad. And, you know, we have this and we have that. And slowly, slowly come back. So, you know, I've been teaching yoga in the community. I'm still like a volunteer in one of our communities after Maria. And, you know, two Saturdays ago, I led a teaching, you know, a, a yoga class. Somebody says to me, oh, come on, I can't get on the floor. I can't get up. And I say, you'll see how you can get up. You know, he was like 76. And lo and behold, he did. So there was a sense of really by controlling your body and by being able to do things with your body that you also retrain your brain. And we also do Reiki and other things that are very much part of alternative ways of healing. I'm talking with Cynthia Garcia-Cole. She's a professor of education, psychology, and pediatrics at the University of Puerto Rico, and we're catching up with her at an airport before she flies back to Puerto Rico. She's been in, uh, doing a few speaking engagements, and in a few minutes we're going to have an interview with uh, Sandra Cisnero. Stay with us. Now, where do you think things go from here right now in Puerto Rico? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about higher education in Puerto Rico, and you were at Albizu University and then moved over to the University of Puerto Rico, which is undergoing cuts and things of that nature. Um, yes. How do you understand that situation? Well, basically, we're not being governed by ourselves anymore. As you know, we have a junta fiscal that is really determining where the funds are going, etc. And for some reason or another, they don't see the University of Puerto Rico as a resource. So I'm a graduate of that university. I did my undergraduate there. I've been teaching since 2011 students that are graduating from there. This is a real, real um, asset. And I just hope that this um, Junta Fiscal sees it as the future of Puerto Rico rather than deciding that education there is not a priority. Puerto Ricans want to be educated. You cannot imagine how many kids, kids I meet that have, you know, basically other jobs. They're Uber drivers. They are, you know, dealing with any other food pantry, etc. And they are there because they want an education. So we really need to stick together people who are at the U.S., who are Puerto Ricans and others that understand to really say, you know, this is a high priority for us. Don't touch our university system, please. Let it be. Sounds like your boarding call, isn't it? (laughs) It is my boarding call. Cynthia Garcia-Cole is a professor of education, psychology, and pediatrics at the University of Puerto Rico. She taught at Brown University as well for 30 years and Albizu University, a psychologically specialization university in Puerto Rico. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's been happening with Puerto Rico and mental health. Thank you so much for keeping us in the air and as an important news.
Coming up after the break, author Sandra Cisneros. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Sandra Cisneros, the famed Mexican-American author, is best known for her coming-of-age book, The House on Mango Street, that took place in Chicago's Humboldt Park neighborhood. Sandra visited Chicago last week to promote her latest book, Puro Amor, and Worldview's Viviana Garcia Blanco sat down with Cisneros to discuss the book and how she expresses her art when she's not writing. So you're back in town with a new dual-language chapbook called Puro Amor, and it's the first kind of book for you in more ways than one. Tell us about the story itself. Oh, well, first, I'm so glad to be back at WBEZ, home of my <laughs> literary grandfather, Studs <laughs> Terkel, you know, who still guides and illuminates my path. So I, I'm just overwhelmed every time I come in here. Uh, my new book is actually a chapbook, and what that means is it's a staple-bound book, and it's one story from the beautiful Saraband Press, and renowned small press in Kentucky. And it's unusual in that it's in English and Spanish. So on one page is English and then FOSS in Spanish. And if you only know one language, you can learn a second by reading the story in both languages. And it's also unusual in that uh, it's the first time that I'm publishing my drawings. And there's my, my pets and my friend's pets are featured in the book. Your drawings are scattered throughout the story. And the story is about this married couple and, and the man is unfaithful and to kind of compensate, the wife surrounds herself with these beautiful, exotic yes. animals. Yes, it's a very famous painter named Mr. Rivera, who's married to a woman who's not famous. And I don't say her name or his name, but I think you can guess from the story. They live in a blue house in Coyacan. They have lots of animals. And the husband likes to have his uh, little copitas and fire his gun at night and has all these guests from over the, all over the world. And his wife is getting older and deteriorating in health, and she doesn't feel well. And uh, it's just a, a day. Uh, not even a day, just a couple hours of a day in a relationship. I wrote it after my mom died 10 years ago, and uh, I was feeling very alone. You know, when you're a published writer, you don't write when you feel like it. You just go to work. And that day, my back hurt me. And uh, like Mrs. Rivera, she had back problems. And I also was inspired by a postcard I saw of her. Now she's famous, and uh, we won't say who she is, but her initials are... FK. And at that time, she was known as Mrs. Rivera. This was illuminated to me thanks to the great grand dame of Mexican letters, Elena Poniatowska, when she gave a lecture at the National Museum of Mexican Art. And she spoke about women in the golden age of Mexican art in the 30s, post-revolution 20s and 30s. And she mentioned that Frida, who we know as Frida, was not known as Frida. She was known as Mrs. Rivera. Mm. And that just blew me away. And so I started the story with that idea of someone who isn't famous. Uh, she's the wife of a famous artist. And this is a morning in which she doesn't feel well. I just wanted to follow that. Of course, when you're writing about someone else, uh, you invariably write about yourself. And my own solitude and sadness and my own menagerie of animals that give me light daily. They're all featured in the story. So even one of the pets is named after one of my pets. 
Chamaquito. Yeah, if you go to my webpage, you'll see his photo and his obituary because I write an obituary for every animal passes away. And, uh, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing when I was writing the story, but that's the wonderful thing. You're dreaming with your eyes open when you ride. And when you lose someone and are in mourning, your heart is cracked open. The Sufis say, God breaks the heart again and again until it stays open. And when you are in mourning and suffering the loss of a beloved person, you are living in the same state of grace as an artist. An artist has to chip at their own heart until they get it cleft in two, and then they can create. But if you're already there because you're sad, you might as well use it to illuminate that grief with art and transform your darkness to light because we forget when we're in mourning we're also open to things of beauty not just things of pain someone may tell you oh my dog died and you'll burst into tears but you can also sit under a tree and you will be so open you will feel its strength and its grace and its joy so I I tell people oh you know you're in that place that I work to get to every day when I write (laughs) so you might as well go to the arboretum or to the lake or hug a dog or hug someone's kid. You know, it's you're in that sacred state. And I didn't realize after I finished the story that I was really writing about myself. I actually have a quote here from the book, Puro Amor y Puro Amor. That's what each pet gave her, pure and clean, pure love and only love. Who wouldn't want that? And it's a beautiful quote, but it's so bittersweet. So is that kind of the feeling you were going for? Well, you know, I don't never know what I'm writing till I'm done. So, you know, when people like interviewers like yourself or critics say, were you going for this? I say, how the hell do I know? I have no idea where I'm going. I'm just dreaming with my eyes open. And I, it's like the dream directs itself. It's only after I finish writing that I know what I was walking towards. You walk in the dark when you write. You're going towards an answer, but you don't know the question until after you're done. It's reverse. And for me, you know, I I look at that story because I wrote it right after my mother died in 2007, and I put it away, and I thought it was a failed story. And several years later, because I usually let things sleep for five or six years, I pulled it out and started working on it again. Uh, It's very appropriate that we're speaking about this now because my mother died on November 1st. She was Mm. a Chicagoan, and I will be constructing an altar in my home for her. So it's it's appropriate that we speak about her. I know she's here, and uh, she always wanted to be the star, so (laughs) we got to talk about her. (laughs) And uh, uh, rightly so, because if it hadn't been for my mom and the Chicago Public Library, I wouldn't be an author. You mentioned before this is the first time you've illustrated a book before. Yeah. You know, I draw, and I've always been an artist. In fact, I was an artist before I was a writer. I tell people I was born an artist, but I didn't uh, know it, and I substituted drawings for words in middle school. But I always drew my whole life. I still draw. And, uh, you know, I just give the drawings away to people. Like if I come over to your house and I like your cat and I can see the shape and can follow the lines, then I'll use the same pen that I write with and draw and say, oh, does this look like your cat? And you'll say, yeah. And I'll say, oh, here you go. So I give them away. I only have a few drawings floating around in my life in my own home. Uh, basically, they're animals that uh, I know well or the animals of friends. I can also draw people, but you have to pay them to pose. And animals are very generous. (laughs) And if they're sleeping, they're very easy to draw. I should say less difficult. 
And what was the significance uh, for you to make this into a dual language book? English on one side, Spanish on the other? Well, the thing is, I live in Mexico now, in San Miguel de Allende, and um, Mexico has always lived inside me, so it's appropriate. Even when I was living here in Chicago, I spoke Spanish with my father and uh, um, English with my mother. And uh, I always had the two languages. Uh, Later, when I moved to San Antonio, Texas, the, the two started to mix, And now that I live in Mexico, I'm always overjoyed when my work can be translated. This book is translated by my excellent translator and friend, the poet and fiction writer Liliana Valenzuela. She's a reverse migrant. She went from Mexico to school at the University of Texas, Austin, and got married and stayed there. And I did the other migration from Texas to Mexico. So we're very good friends, and her Spanish is so beautiful because she's a poet and an anthropologist, so she is the right person to work with. You know, this is just a, a beautiful book. I can't. I have to tell you, it's uh, nice to hold. It's small. It's just one story. I started out my career publishing with a chapbook, and so here I am at almost 64 with another chapbook. And I'm delighted because I want to share my work with as many people as possible. And sometimes they don't speak English or sometimes they don't speak Spanish. And this is a wonderful way to uh, share it. I'm Viviana Garcia Blanco, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm speaking with the author Sandra Cisneros about her latest work. So, Sandra, besides writing, I know you're a Ford Foundation Art of Change fellow. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned so that. So what, what, tell us a bit about that. What do you do well, as a fellow? you know, one day I got an email from the Ford Foundation. It was worded so nicely by the poet Elizabeth Alexander. It was something like, would you be willing to accept a grant, etc." And I was like, what? <laughs> of course. And the nice thing that makes it so meaningful for me is that it's given to artists who are activists. Uh, so they gave it to people like, you know, Mikhail Baryshnikov, Luis Alfaro, Joy Harjo, Edwidge Danticat, Esperanza Spalding, like really cool people, you know, just all of these people in different fields. And, you know, some of them are heroes of mine. So the fact that I'm in that company is a great honor. And the fact that it was given to me for activism because I feel that my literature is an attempt to help to relieve my community, help to relieve pain in whatever form I can in my lifetime. So this is a special grant. It was one in which they wanted me to do anything I wanted in a project towards democracy. And who wouldn't want that in these times, no, when we're feeling very censored? So I've been interviewing people who don't normally give interviews. I've been documenting undocumented individuals that have come from Latin America and are living in the United States. And, of course, uh, that requires a bit of confidence to be able to speak to me. I've spoke to people who are citizens and who hire them or people in Mexico who give them refuge or represent them. I've spoken to former Border Patrol agent and even people in Mexico who support our president and his administration. I thought I need to interview them too because they live in Mexico, so I want to understand. And so I talked to students and DACAs and dreamers and elders and housekeepers and farm workers, and I've traveled various cities and rural areas, and I'm now in the process of 
gathering all these voices, which makes me feel like I have your job because I carry a recorder. <laughs> and my friend Mariana Rosa showed me how to operate the equipment and what I should buy, although I'm always terrified because I can barely manage my phone. <laughs> but I do record people. And you know, one of the things I learned, not only do I have to have my recorder and the mic set up and, you know, the headset, which makes me feel really cool, <laughs> but uh, one thing I didn't anticipate I had to carry with me packs of Kleenex, because when people open their heart, say, desahogan, as we say, they undrown, say, desahogan of their pain, they undrown themselves. They're carrying all this water, this sea of pain like a cactus you know, inside them. And when you ask them and actually listen, because that's my job, not to talk, but to shut up and listen, people tell their stories, and invariably, the story comes out of their eyes. And I have to fish around and give them Kleenex. So now I go to Costco and buy Kleenex before I interview people. I have little packs with me. And, you know, this is something amazing. You know, so I'm kind of a therapist. I hope that listening to them is a type of medicine. Everyone, everyone I listen to, even if I don't agree with them, I feel what an honor to be able to gather their voices. And my task now is to edit these voices. And I hope will be a chorus of voices a script that um, someone else can use to sing or perform or make an opera or dance to. That's my idea. Speaking of operas, I also hear that you're working on an opera based on your first book, The House on Mango Street. Well, actually, it's Derek Bermel, the composer, uh, who's working on it. And I'm just kind of in the playing stage. He came and, you know, we went to Chautauqua and he did like a suite. And so we're expanding it. And it was so much fun to be with another artist that's in an entirely different field, you know, because when you're talking with writers, it's one thing. But then when you get someone who's like a musician and a composer and a conductor, oh, it's so cool. It's like just having a new uh, friend that comes over to, for a play date. And we just laugh so much and we sing and we play music to each other. And then we act out the whole opera in our minds, like Alfred Hitchcock, it's all done in our head. Unfortunately, <laughs> now we have to, you know, get some money to do it. But what a great idea. What a great time we're having. So, uh, you know, right now we're in the stage where it's on paper and I still have to write oh, little details like the lyrics. But, you know, <laughs> that's like writing poems. Small details. Yes. <laughs> but we're having a lot of fun. It's going to premiere at Princeton next May. Just the suite, not the opera. But anyone out there who would like an opera and want to invest and help us out, here we are. Send us your money. We're ready. <laughs> the House on Mango Street was published in 1984, and it still remains one of your most relatable and popular works you've ever yeah, written. Yeah, Why do you think well, that is? Um, one, because people don't like to read, so they like that it's short. And a lot of people in high school don't like to read big, fat books, so it's, like, short. They say, oh, one chapter, that's one page, I can do that. But they don't realize it's a poem in disguise. And I think that's one of its popularities. Also, it was uh, shaped so that you didn't have to read the whole thing. You could just open it at random and read one. And I think that appeals to uh, people's short attention span these days. <laughs> and also, I think that books are medicine. And they are either your medicine and your prescription or they aren't. You know, you could pick up a book that someone says, oh, this is one of the top ten books you must read. But if it's not what ails you, you're going to be a little mystified. And I think that's the thing, that this book, for some reason, is the right medicine for 
the young people at this time in history. I don't know if it'll always be the right medicine for everyone because, you know, you could look at great books in the past like Uncle Tom's Cabin. Well, you know, that instigated so much change. But unless you're studying history of that time, very few people have read Uncle Tom's Cabin, kind of, you know, grew out of favor. So I don't know where my book will be, but the fact that it's helping people, regardless of their color or age or gender, to come to some place where they can speak about their own pain makes me very happy. I get letters all the time, especially moving when I get a letter from someone who is the opposite of me, you know, a man, uh, not Latino, younger, older, and he'll read this and he'll say how it changed him. Oh, That makes my day. That, I guess, shows the power of art to make change. Some artists believe art cannot make change, but I beg to differ. Art can make change, and it can make change when we get out of the way and are of service to those we love. Because I think anytime we do anything with all our heart on behalf of those we love with no personal agenda, Siempre sale bonito. It's always going to turn out great. That's a law of the universe. Anything we do with love on behalf of those we love with no personal agenda is always going to turn out beautiful. That's what House on Mongo Street taught me. Thank you for those wise and beautiful words. That's the only wise thing I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm definitely looking forward to this epic opera once it comes into fruition. Yes, maybe we'll find some generous benefactor here in my hometown. They're out there somewhere. (laughs) In the meantime, Puro Amor is available to buy now. Thanks again, Sandra, for joining us. Oh, Viviana, thank you. I'm Viviana Garcia Blanco, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about Bookwala. It's an organization that puts libraries into orphanages, primarily in India. Hope you can join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Don't forget to sign up for the Worldview podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can go to wbez.org slash worldview and sign up there. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Galilee Abdullah. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance and the wise interview with Sandra Cisneros. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.